Hey everybody, and welcome to the Disciple Makers Podcast by Discipleship.org. This is your host, Dave Stovall. Parents, get ready for a powerhouse episode from Dave and Sydney Clayton of Ethos Church here in the Nashville area. They give us a glimpse of their passion for discipleship within their family, sharing their personal experiences, and offering principles for effective family discipleship. Dave and Sydney emphasize how to disciple young children, adult children, grandchildren, and even spiritual children. So if you don't have biological kids, don't skip this episode. They talk about how the concept of family that we find in scripture often extends beyond the traditional nuclear family to encompass the idea of spiritual family where all of us can function as spiritual fathers and mothers. As a parent of three kiddos myself, sometimes these talks can feel defeating, like I've already messed him up and I'm way behind. But the Clayton's approach is descriptive, not prescriptive. So it actually encouraged me to apply their insights to my own context of parenthood with the help of the Holy Spirit, and I believe it'll do the same thing for you. Let's hear from Dave and Sydney Clayton as they talk about discipling our kids. Here we go. You know, this conversation about discipleship in the home, it, it really began for us, you know, almost 18 years ago. So this Saturday, Sydney and I are celebrating our 18th wedding anniversary, which is hard to believe. We Yeah. Um, Thank you, thank you. You know, we'll take gift cards and uh, Venmo. They'll put our Venmo. You know, it's not you know, a bachelorette party, no. Yeah, yeah. Any way you want to show your affection for us, we'd gladly receive it. But, you know, we got married almost 18 years ago. We've been in full-time ministry for 20 years, which is crazy just the way that time is such a weird thing. It goes so fast. And I remember our first seven years of full-time ministry, we were working with college students. I was a full-time a campus pastor. Sydney was a college professor. We were in the thick of it with students. It was an amazing season. And I have this really distinct memory about a year and a half into our marriage before we even had children. I'd come home from this vision retreat and it was awesome. You know, I'd set out like, here's our four-year discipleship strategy for how we're going to not just take the campus, but the nations for Jesus. You know, we just had this like over-the-top vision. Here's what we're going to do. And I'd taken all of our leaders away for a few days to kind of pour out the vision with them. And so I come back from that and Sydney had not been on the retreat. And so I'm just catching her up. Here's everything that we talked about and here's what we're doing. And I had this moment as I was sharing the vision for our ministry with Sydney where the Holy Spirit just spoke really clearly to me. I didn't hear an audible voice, but it was as if he spoke audibly in the room. And he said, Dave, you better be careful. You've got far more vision for your ministry than you do your marriage. And it was, I'm sure you've had one of these moments where the spirit of God just convicts you, you know, and he was like the velvet hammer. Like, I went, oh man, this is crushing. And yet at the same time, it was a really beautiful invitation. And we found ourselves standing at this crossroads where the Lord was saying, hey, you don't want to get this backwards. You don't want to be one of those leaders where your best fruit, your best work is from the platform. You actually want the best of what you're doing to be kind of in those private spaces where no, nobody else is singing. One of our deep convictions is that the most shallow form of intimacy is actually public intimacy, right? Like, you know, there are things that we can't talk about, things that we can't say or do in front of others that's just reserved for when we're together. Like, intimacy should flow from the deepest places in the personal spaces of life. But a lot of times in ministry, we get that backwards. And if we're not careful, you know, our relationship with God from the platform is better than our relationship with God in the living room or you know, whatever your framework. And so there was this invitation from the Lord to say, hey, we, I really want you to think about what it looks like for all of your ministry to not just flow 
through your home, but from the reality of what's happening in the home. And there's this really sobering passage of scripture, Judges chapter two, you know, we've read it a lot, but in that season, we're really struck by Judges chapter two, verses 10 through 11. It's right after Joshua and Caleb and their whole generation has passed away. Verses 10 and 11, and it says, and another generation raised up who neither knew the Lord or what he had done for Israel. And man, how does this generation that saw their parents, you know, the, the, the Jordan River was parted, the walls of Jericho fell, all of those things. How did that generation grow up in the midst of that and not learn who the Lord was and what he was done? Because like, something was breaking down in the context of the home. So this became a real passion of ours. We'll talk a, a little bit about that big framework in the next um, session. But in this, we really want to get into the nuts and bolts. So how do we think as leaders in such a way that the discipleship that we're doing in the home exceeds anything that we're doing in the church or in the neighborhood or for the nations that it all flows from there? We just want to give you sort of five principles, five frameworks that, that we think through. And uh, hopefully it'll be real conversational. We'll just kind of walk you through those together. But the first big principle, first big idea is this. If you want to really disciple your family, your spiritual family in the home, you're going to have to make space to consistently get away with God in order to catch a vision for what he's doing. You have to make space to get away with the Lord in order to catch a vision for what he's doing. I love Luke chapter 5, verse 16. What's Jesus constantly doing? He is constantly retreating where? to the lonely places. He knew that he couldn't just work on the ministry or in the ministry. He had to get above the ministry. He had to get alone with the Father. He had to catch a vision uh, for what it is that the Father was saying. And then he had to go put that into practice in the context of his spiritual family. And for Sydney and I, very practically, one of the ways that this looks is twice a year, our goal is two times a year, she and I are gonna try to get away for 48 hours. And it's not a vacation. It's not just an escape or a respite, although all of those things are in play. We try to get away for the sole purpose of meeting with God to catch a fresh vision for the sake of our family. So not for the church, not for the city, not for the nation. Like, hey, God, you've entrusted us with a couple of boys, you know, three boys. Like, what's your vision for what that looks like? And what we noticed is, you know, Jesus says he withdrew from the crowds and he went and spent time with the Father. We have three boys and all five of us are extroverts. So it feels like a crowd in our house. It's like a noise tornado. It's just it loud. Auditory and... onslaught is terrible at times. But and we realize we have to get away and be still before the Lord, spend time worshiping with the Lord, being with the Lord, and catch vision for what He has for our family, catch vision for what He has for the church that He's entrusted us to steward. And so in regards to our family, what we realized you know, and quite candidly, the first time we did this, we didn't know what we were doing. You know, oh, get away, great. We brought like a stack of books like this. We had with journals. We just stared at each other like, what does this look like? I don't know. And actually the first time we actually brought our four-month-old with us to an Airbnb. Not Maybe not the best idea to have a newborn in an Airbnb. That's right. And we just tried to figure out what does this look like? And over time, what we've realized is in our obedience and stepping out, God has been so faithful. And about three or four years ago, we started realizing when we took time to withdraw, we would spend time worshiping, we'd spend time in scripture. And in that time, we come together and say, hey, what is God doing in your heart? What is he saying to you? And as he shared his heart and I shared my heart, we actually got the full picture of what God wanted to do for our family. Because isn't that God's heart, the heart of unity, that two become one, we're one flesh. 
And so really it was both of us getting away together, making space to hear from the Lord, but then process it together for what he wanted to invite our family into. Yeah, and you know, this is one of the conversations we have most often with young couples are going, okay, what's it look like to get away and catch vision from the Lord? And we try to just make it really simple. You know, our we have a three-part framework that every time we get away, it's just really simple. We're gonna spend some time playing together. And I know everybody's like, wait, playing? And we actually believe that um, playing together unlocks our hearts towards God. Like he created play. He's a playful God. He's amazing. If we're gone for one day or two days or three days, every day we try to consecrate that day with play. We just go do something really fun together. So we play together, we pray together, and we plan together. And so that's our three-part framework. Every day we're going to play. We're going to do something fun. Every day we're going to spend some time praying, God, what are you saying for each of our kids? What are you saying to us? Where are you trying to lead us? And then we spend some time just trying to make some plans. Like, God, what, like, what's this next season look like for uh, um, our family? And it, it's amazing, you know, in our marriage, I tend to think kind of big picture. That's the way that God's wired me. And Sydney loves to think sort of on the ground. And so a lot of times we get away on our retreat. And one of the things that I'll bring to the table is, hey, let's just take a little bit of time and imagine our family 30 years from now. And that's something we'll do. And so we'll go, okay, 30 years from now, Mike is 42. He's older than me. It's like, that's crazy. Okay. And Jack is 40 and Judah is 38. Like that's where this is going. And we're like, what do we want worship to feel like in our home 30 years from now? What do we want our conversations around God's word to be like? What, What do we hope to see in their marriage? You know, all of these kinds of things. And we'll just spend some time dreaming and imagining and praying with the Lord about those things. And then we'll just start asking some questions. Okay, what are the things we need to do right now? And, you know, I think sometimes just in the onslaught, the tyranny of the urgent, it's really easy to lose sight of the most important and to really lose sight of what's coming. It's kind of principle number one, you know, is, hey, how do we make time to consistently get away to catch a vision from God? You know, men, I'll just kind of lovingly just challenge you right here. I just put this on my radar. My job is to fight for the space for us to get away, to catch a vision for God. So I try to make it easy as possible. Hey, babe, what are we going to do? When do we get it on the calendar? I try to help line up the childcare. It's just, hey, how do we prioritize getting away? So principle number one is how do we get away to catch a vision? And then when we come back from that time away, secondly, is how do we begin to set some goals, some bite-sized goals towards whatever it is that God was speaking to us? on that time away? How do we just set some really tangible goals in light of what we just saw with the Lord as we were away on that retreat? You know, I love Proverbs 29. It says where there's no vision, the people cast off restraint or they perish or they look for lesser visions, you know, whatever you want to say there. And I think most of us, maybe all of us, because of what you do in in your ministry, in your various contexts, you know what it is to catch a vision and then to make some goals for it. I think a lot of times we just fail to do this in the spaces that matter most. And so a lot of us as families, we are drifting and in our careers, we are charging. And we're just trying to reverse that reality to go, hey, in our families, let's charge towards something brilliant and beautiful and non-regrettable. And let's let everything else kind of flow out of that. And so when we think about goals, we, we typically, for our family, we try to think about those goals in two big buckets. One of those buckets is character. Like when we think about our boys, who are they becoming? Like what are some of the marks of Jesus's character being manifest fully in them 
in the season of life that they're in as an eight-year-old or a 10-year-old or 12-year-old. And, you know, what's his character look like? And then what are some of those competencies that we want to develop in them? What are some of the things that we want to, to train them in, the, the things to do, how to speak, how to act, how to live? And Sid, I love what you do where a lot of times we come out of these retreats and you'll break it down into the RPMs and mm-hmm. you help our boys. You kind of invite them into that goal-setting process. Can you yeah. unpack that? Yeah, we, we just feel that if at least you have a goal, your arrows are all going the same direction, right? If you don't even set a goal, there's no chance. And even if you miss hitting the target, at least we're headed in the right direction. And so we actually invite our boys in with us to try and do this. And so this is really practical. But what I do is I draw like a big heart on a sheet of paper and I divide it into four quadrants. And we call it our RPMs. R is for relational goals that we have. P is for physical goals that we set with them. M is for mental goals, and S is for spiritual goals. And what I try to do with them is kind of think about two different goals in each category. So relational, physical, mental, and spiritual. And we take these goals at the beginning of the school year, and we sit down, and we just make it fun. Like, hey, get out the markers. They're helping choose the goals they want to pursue. And I try to make it really simple. Think about spiritual goals. I want them in the Word every single day. That's our goal as a family. You know, again, we may not hit the target perfectly, but if at least we're aiming that way, we're winning. And so, hey, what is your goal? And eight, 10, 12, it looks different for each one of them. It's individualized. So our 12-year-old, hey, I want you reading through the New Testament this fall season. That's your goal. So that's his scripture goal. And then a second one, typically I like to say, hey, let's enter into a discipline. What could that look like? So in the spring, we really, we as a city do a citywide fasting and prayer movement. So in the spring, usually it's a fasting goal in there. But in the fall, maybe it's, hey, I want to prayer walk our neighborhood once a week. Really simple, but a discipline and then scripture is really what I'm thinking about with that. And it's a simple way. We take that sheet of paper, big heart, quadrants. They can see their goals right there. And we tape it up right beside their bed on the wall so they can see it all throughout that season. We typically do it fall semester and then spring semester and again. And every morning I wake them up and go, see how far behind you are? <laughs> see how you're fan up? It's, it's really fun when you invite the kids into it and to go, hey, here's what we're dreaming about as a family. Here's how we just kind of inch by inch. You know, I think a lot of us, especially as leaders, we have this tendency to overestimate what we can get done in a year. And we underestimate what God might do in a lifetime. And so we're just trying to help them see. And, you know, when it comes to goals, once again, Sydney sort of tends to think kind of on the ground, right in front of us, what do we need to do over the next six months? And she's really good. And sort of my job or the way that I'm wired is to think about big picture. And so with our boys, you know, I I think it was eight or nine years ago, the Lord gave us this image with our boys and really simple phrase. He said, you're not trying to raise great kids. You are trying to father future fathers. You're not just trying to raise great kids. You're trying to father future fathers. And it really changed the framework for how we thought about our time with them, how we're trying to disciple them. And he gave this image of us going up a series of mountains and how as we went from one mountain to the next, there were these various trailheads and things that we needed to look out for. And and so there were sort of these seven stages of the journey that we felt like God's inviting us to walk with our boys from now until their fathers. And so for my goals around character and competency, I, every year on those prayer retreats, I look at where we're at on the trail and I go, okay, in this section of the trail, what are the conversations that I want to have with them? What's the character that I want to develop in them? What are the competencies that we want to develop in them? 
And what are the things that are going to come against that? And that's, that's part of what we do. We get away. We catch that vision. Here's where we're at on the map. Here's what's happening. Here are the goals for the semesters that lining up with what's happening. Big picture. You know, very practically, a lot of this, I'm not sure where you're at in your story, but sometimes when you talk to young parents, they go, how do you do this? This is a lot. And it really doesn't feel like a lot because we just try to do it gradually day by day. And, so, you know, very simply, one of the things that we try to do is a weekly date night. It doesn't always happen. You know, sometimes things mess that up, but at least two or three times a month, we're going on a date and a part of that date night, we're just going, hey, how's it going? What's happening? You know, and where are we at in the journey? So just this sort of bite by bite, week by week, day by day sort of thing. So principle number one, you have to set aside some time to get away to catch a vision. Principle number two, you come back from that and you set some goals in light of what God has done. Really simple, small steps towards big realities, right? And then principle number three is that you also have to establish some guardrails. You have to establish some guardrails. And so it's not just about where you're aiming. You know, it's not just, okay, what mountain are we going to go up? It's, hey, how do we protect our kids in this season of life from driving the car off the mountain? Because there's a lot of things that would kind of want to take them off the mountain. I love Colossians chapter three, verses one through 15, you know, where Paul is talking about the way that we grow in Christ. And he says, hey, there's some things that you have to put on in Christ. And there's some things that you have to take off in Christ. In other words, if you're going to be faithful, if you're going to grow, there's some things you need to lean into. And there's some things that you need to let go, go of and protect yourself from. And so we found, you know, part of the battle is not just getting away and catching a vision or setting some goals, but in every season, recognizing, hey, what are the guardrails that our kids need in order to help them really live out the ways of Jesus? And we'll just kind of give you four categories for these guardrails. We could give you maybe a number of them, but to kind of help you get started. That first guardrail that we really take into account is calendar. And we just have realized that one of Satan's tools is just busyness or white noise. And if we don't slow ourselves down, we're not gonna be able to hear the Lord's voice, not be able to hear his direction. And we're definitely not gonna be able to pour into our children in the way that we feel is necessary. And so with calendar, we literally have the big calendar that goes on the side of your fridge that you have to like flip to the next month, right? But we do that so we are able to see not just daily what's going on, but weekly, what do we have going on? And over the course of a month, what do we have going on? You know, where are some places that maybe we could maximize our time here? Where are some places that maybe we need to just create margin and we just need to eliminate some things, right? So one way that we will share failures too here. So one way we failed as a family is one summer, we let one of our kiddos do an all-star team. And that was a mistake. We felt like we got to July 4th before we even started summer. And so we missed it. And so the way we adjusted our calendar is we said, hey, there's three of you. There are four seasons in a year. You may pick two sports and you can't choose the summer to do a sport. And so that's how we missed it one year and our kids felt it, we named it, but then we pivoted and adjusted. We weren't going to let our calendar rule us. We were going to be the ones that were in charge of saying yes and saying no. Another practical example, I think you guys all heard about the shooting that happened in Nashville. And the day that it happened, our kids were home with us and we homeschool Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and then they go somewhere Tuesday, Thursday. And I was really grateful they were home with us that day. And I was able to enter into conversation with them over lunch and talk about what was going on in our own city. And Dave called, he was at work and he said, hey, I really think we need to help our people process this. I really think we need to invite them into a place of prayer as a community. And I think we need to do something tonight with them. 
I just felt a little hesitancy. I said, I trust Holy Spirit speaking through you. I believe that's what we need to do. I said, I feel the tension that we need to steward our home really well before we go out and steward anyone else really well. He said, absolutely. He said, can you come home early for dinner? He said, done. And so Dave immediately shifted, changed his calendar, cut off what he needed to. He came home early. And as a family around our dinner table, we processed what was going on in real time. And what was really beautiful is we saw the fruit of it right away. Is that night as we went up to the church offices and we all gathered together to pray, our kids actually entered into helping us minister to others. They greeted people at the door. They prayed with others. And instead of them feeling like anxious and not knowing what's going on, they felt empowered because we changed our calendar in a way that was necessary. And, you know, I think one of the things that's killing our families and killing our churches and just contributing to the dry rot that's happening through our nation is um, we are so addicted to busyness. It's a virtue in our culture. You know, it's a sign of like importance and significance. And, and yet at the same time, we all know it's destroying us. And we think one of the primary guardrails that we have to put in place as a family is just this recognition that you are not omnipotent. You can't be in all places at all times. You can't be all things to all people. And you are going to have to be in charge of your calendar. There's some guardrails that you're going to have to put there. It's going to look different in every season. It's going to look different with every family. It's That's a huge one, though, guardrails around the calendar. Another one is guardrails around connectivity or technology, whatever you want to say there. And this is always a fun one. We love to to make people really angry with this one. But, you know, we go, hey, you you can't do a million different things and be passionate for Jesus. And you can't be constantly distracted and discipled for the world and be passionate for Jesus. It just doesn't happen. And I know that can sound tough, but we go, hey, as a family, we think we have to make some courageous choices about what we are and are not doing in regards to technology. And this is so unpopular. We feel the tension. And a lot of times we feel Amish, you know, in this. But I go, J- just imagine me walking into your house and your 11-year-old is there. And I say, hey, forget your parents for just a moment. Do you want to have constant access to the worst people on the planet 24 hours a day, seven days a week? The kids would be like, what? Parents would be like, what are you doing? It's like, <laughs> when we put a smartphone in a child's hand at too young of an age, it's exactly what's happening. And we go, hey, do you want access to the worst people on the planet forever? 24-7. You know, most of our kids are spending seven to eight hours a day being discipled by a screen in an hour to two hours a month being discipled by your kids' ministry. It's crazy. And we go, why are we losing the war? We're not losing the war because we've lost the war for their attention. And so one of the things that we're constantly wrestling with is how do we put some guardrails around connectivity? Technology, seven, roughly, probably eight years ago, this started for me. God was just saying, hey, Dave, you never, ever had to compete for your dad's attention. And, you know, I, I was a child of the 80s and 90s, and I'd go on vacation with my family and Never was I competing for my dad's attention with his phone. When we were away, like we were away. Like I remember one time, like literally one time on a family vacation where his work tracked us down when we were at Disney World, like at the hotel. And we went, oh my goodness, someone must have died. And spoiler alert, someone had died. Like that's why you got interrupted on vacation. Now you get interrupted on vacation because it's just what people do. You interrupted at night. Why? It's just what people do. And there's no, 
And so seven or eight years ago, I was wrestling with this and I thought, man, in this world that is hyper-connected but pervasively lonely, because there is a difference between connection and community, what does it look like to, to think about this differently, to do community and connection differently? And so I made the jump. I went back from my iPhone back to, do you guys remember these? Have you seen one of these? Like, I get so many questions about this. They're like, what's going on? You know, are you Amish? You know, um, uh, every day I feel more and more uh, like I am. But we just started asking questions. How can we lead our kids somewhere we're not going? And how do we wrestle through some of the complexities? And once again, this is not the answer. We're just going, what are some of the guardrails? What are some of the ways? How do we think about, um, you know, the time that we're spending um, being discipled by the things that we're saying? And, you know, guardrails around kind of our connectivity, guardrails around our calendar. Give us the guardrails uh, around what we consume. Yeah, with our consumption, just like as a child is young. But if you're wanting to raise healthy children, you're not going to feed them junk food, right? And so I'm really aware of the consumption of what they're taking in. And so that looks like technology. It looks like the books they're reading. And very practically, with our kids, as they're reading through and consuming these books, they love to read. I'll often read the first book in a series before. If it's something I'm not familiar with, I'll read ahead of them. Now, I can't read every book that they're reading. You know, I'm not that avid of a reader. But man, I want to know what they're consuming for hours on end, right? Another very simple thing that happened a few years ago is we were in our home and our kids starting having nightmares. That's not how our kids roll. That's just not part of their story. And they had nightmares pretty consistently for almost two weeks. I was just laying in bed and I was just like, man, Lord, what? And the world is going on with our kids. Then out of nowhere, the Lord just illuminated a show they'd been watching. It was one of those anime shows, a Japanimation show where it was youth seven and under. Didn't think anything about it. It should be fine. You know, it had subtitles to it. The Lord just illuminated that. I was like, okay, I don't know what that is, but I'm just gonna address it. And so I just started praying right then. In the name of Jesus, any stronghold that I had in our house had to leave, prayed over it, and we stopped watching it. Guess what happened? Not another nightmare. Not another single nightmare because just surrendering our Lord, what in the world is going on in our house? And let you have first word on that. And then realizing what they're consuming. I don't even know all the undercurrents that go behind that show. And I need to pay attention to what they're taking in on a daily basis. Yeah, and so guardrails around consumption. They give you one more category. Guardrails around community. Who are the voices that are shaping their view of the world? And, you know, I think right now there's a lot of conversation around what's happening in schools, which is great. You know, we think about that. What's happening in media and entertainment, that's great. All of those are important conversations. But even just down, you know, on the neighborhood level, you know, who are the kids that are speaking into their life? Who are the friends that are speaking into their life? Who are the adults that they look up to? Who are the voices that are coming in? And what does it look like to create some guardrails to even disciple our kids in such a way where they're thinking critically, not cynically, but they're thinking critically about the voices that they're paying attention to. And so there's, we're blessed. We're in this neighborhood. There's all of these kids. We love these kids. Our house is just like the, you know, it's just like kids are in all the time. And, and we just get to hear, we get to see what's kind of going on. And, you know, we like to ask questions. Hey, when you hang out with that kid, what do you feel? What do you hear? What do you see? What are you noticing? Like, you know, and just asking some of those questions. And I think one of the things that we have noticed is sometimes when we have this conversation, especially with parents that are a little bit younger than us, and we talk about guardrails, typically people respond in one of two ways. And so one way is they hear guardrails and it 
And it sort of gives them fuel for the fire of fear in their life. And they go, I knew it. Like we've got to, we got to buckle down and, and we've got to control. And in no way are we saying guardrails should be fuel for the fire of fear in your life. In fact, anytime we begin to sense that bubbling up at a young couple, we say, hey, here's the bad news is some of your worst fears will indeed come true. And your guardrails can't stop it. And so don't buy the lie that the right guardrails will protect, you know, we try to disarm that and then they get more fearful and they leave. And, you know, the other side of it though is, hey, we don't want it to be a fuel for fear, number one. But the other objection typically is, hey, you guys are just so controlling. And if you would just live on mission and let go of your kids, and we're not advocating for you being controlling. But what we are advocating for is that you take responsibility for formation before you think about mission. Formation before mission. A lot of times we send our kids out into the world for the sake of mission at the expense of them being formed, and then they become the product of the very world that you're trying to reach. And so I think a lot of times we're a little bit naive in that. We go, no, guardrails won't protect you from all of the fears. And guardrails won't protect you from mission, but they do serve in the context of formation, which is really important. And, you know, Principle number one, you get away to catch a vision. You come back, you set some goals that are aiming toward that vision. You establish some guardrails and key areas of your kid's life to keep you moving toward that vision. Number four kind of tags off of that last thing that I said, but in a positive way. Number four is you establish a group of people to live towards this vision with. You establish a group of people to live toward this vision with. It's about community. And one of the things that we realized pretty early on is if we are just trying to do this with our kids on our own, just the two of us, we are going to lose the battle. Like we we can't do this by ourselves. The undercurrent of the world around us is so strong. Even the undercurrent in your church is so strong that if you're trying to live this out in a small sort of privatized sort of way, you just can't swim against the culture by yourself for that long. I love What Proverbs chapter 18, verse 24 says, it says the person that does not have good friends will soon come to ruin. Person without good friends comes to ruin. And I think one of the things that we realized is that Sydney and I, we need people around us that are swimming in the same direction. We need a group. We need a community. And our boys need people around them that are swimming in the same direction, that we need some of that positive peer pressure. We need some people that are helping us kind of work it out. And yet we live in a moment where finding those types of friends and making those kinds of friends and uh, refining those types of friendships is increasingly challenging. My dad and mom, they, they were in full-time ministry for 47 years. They just retired two months ago and my dad transitioned into a new job at the university there where they live. But they were in full-time ministry for 47 years. And when my, I remember when my dad hit his 40th year in ministry, there was this, you know, kind of like big moment, like, wow, 40 years, that's incredible. And I asked him a question. I don't even know what answer I was expecting him to say, but I said, dad, what's the biggest shift that you've seen in 40 years of ministry? And I don't know, I, I expected him to talk about the culture or, you know, what we were seeing in the world. And he just said, oh, it's so easy. He said, 40 years ago, the average adult in our church knew how to find a friend, make a friend and keep a friend. And he goes, and seemingly over the last 40 years, most adults have fundamentally lost that skill set. He said, these two people moved to the city, and I just could assume that as adults, they knew how to find, keep, and steward good friendships. He goes, now we're literally having to teach CEOs of companies 
how to find great friends, how to make great friends, how to keep great friends. And he goes, and that has trickled down into their children and their grandchildren. You bring technology along with that. You bring business along with that. And what we're seeing is the most hyper-connected generation in human history and also the loneliest, most isolated generation in human history. You know, a study came out a few years ago on teenage boys, which really kind of uh, piqued my interest. And it said 80% of teenage boys did not, could not name one deep friendship that they were in regular contact with outside of their family. I went, man, I don't know if that statistic is true, but if it's even in the right hemisphere of reality, I go, that, that is a stunning truth. So one of the responsibilities that we really feel is not just having vision or setting goals or creating guardrails, but going, how do we steward the group of people that are around the two of us and then around our boys? And I love you use this rule of, you know, the law of average that, that we got from our friends. Can you kind of unpack that? Sure. So our friends, Kevin and Ree, have a great thing they call the law of averages. And they have four kiddos just a little bit ahead of ours. And they sat down their oldest daughter and they said, all right, tell me who your five closest friends are. And so she started naming them. He said, okay. I want you to rank your friends, which is a weird thing for your parents to say, right? I want you to rank your friends zero to 10 on a scale of spirituality. Like, where do you think they are as far as drawing you near to Jesus? And she kind of wrote them all down and he took those numbers and he averaged them. He said, you're probably sitting at this number. That's probably where you are. Because it's just true, who we are around, who we surround ourselves with, have input into us. They are going to influence us in our thoughts, and in our actions. And so who we surround ourselves with matters. And so we wanna help our kids in knowing that. We wanna help them make great decisions. In areas where they're not making the best decisions, we're going to gently pull that out. And this year with one of our kiddos, we've had to gently pull that out more than once and say, hey, they're not a bad person, they're a good person, but who you are choosing to be around them is not the best version of you. Mm -hmm. And say, hey, how do we help you be friends with him, be kind with him, but you don't need to go out of your way to sit with him. You need to have some separation there. And it's a conversation we had to come back to multiple times in the year. And then just a few weeks ago, he's like, mom, you know, I just realized you're right. And I've realized both of us have kind of simmered down a little bit. And now I think I can just, we're cool. And we're not so hyper. We can be friends together. They were just kind of like revving each other up. So trying to help them calm down. And he just realized over the course of a year, it's like, oh, mom and dad are right. I see what they see. I need to adjust my behavior. And so that was us helping guide him. Like, hey, this is a group that's good and healthy. And in those groups, I've tried to say, hey, let's hang out with these friends. Let's make an opportunity to go hang out with them. I provide opportunity for them to engage the groups that I want them to be around and help them to decipher, hey, maybe this isn't the best place to spend my time. And the other group that we've also worked really hard at, some of the people that we're discipling, some of the younger adults, they're welcome and come in our house. And you know what's beautiful? Is we always say, you need a third party to reinforce what you are implementing in your home. You know, you can speak into your kids consistently. They can hear that voice, but there comes a point where your voice is no longer the loudest for a season. Some of you are nodding like, yeah, you become an idiot all of a sudden as a parent, right? And so we realize you need a third party to come in and say the same things that you have been saying, but they hear it more clearly because it's just a different voice. So we also want to create groups where that third party can reinforce the same thing that we've been teaching. Yeah, you know, sociologists say that it takes about 50 hours of close proximity with someone from them to, for, for them to go from being a stranger or an acquaintance to being an actual friend. So I want you to think about that. 50 hours, close proximity, doing life together for someone to go from being an acquaintance to being a friend. 
It takes about 200 hours, close proximity, doing life together for someone to go from being a friend to being a really close friend. Now, this is pretty interesting to us when we think about the way that this works in life. It's the reason it's so easy to make lifelong friends in college because you hit that 200 hours in the first three days of the dorm. You don't sleep, you're up, you know, and then you get into like real life outside of college and you're like, I haven't made a real friend in four decades. Well, why? Because you see each other once every six weeks for a 30 minute coffee. That's going to take you about half a lifetime to hit your 200 hours. Think about this in the context of your church for just a minute. If the average family in America is at church one and a half times a month, which is, we don't need to settle for that just for the record, but I want you to think about that for a moment. You know, 20 years ago, a committed follower of Jesus spent on average four to six hours with Christian community per week. 20 years later, recently, that same study was run. A committed, committed Christian family was spending about four hours in Christian community per month. And so just in that reality, if, if your kids are in sort of that flow, even in best case scenario, think about how long it takes for them to build deep relationships with the kids at church if you only view it through the context of Sundays. And so for us, we're going, hey, how do we create these environments? We, we started this thing about six years ago. It's our passion project. Almost nobody knows we do this unless we talk about it in environments like this. It's called the Man Tribe. And as we were figuring out how to disciple our boys, we went, hey, if we just disciple them, but we don't do this communally, they'll hit middle school and we'll no longer be the coolest people in their life anymore. So how are we going to do this? And so when they began school, you know, kind of that kindergarten age, we built this little group of boys around each of our sons and then their fathers. And so the goal was, hey, how do I disciple the dads as together we disciple the sons? How do we live this out in community? And so we're about six years into this experiment. We've invited each of these groups into a 12-year journey. So let's circle back in six years and see if any of it's worked. We don't know yet, but we're just trying it going, hey, let's try to do something together. And what we found is together trying to build a community where every month, you know, these dads were going, hey, what's the conversation we're going to have with our sons this month? Hey, what's the character we're trying to develop? And some of these things are hopefully sounding familiar to you now. What are the competencies we want to train them in? See, Sydney and I, we, we go, the secret sauce is we get away with the Lord. We have the goals, we have the guardrails. And then we come back in community and we go, hey guys, we have this idea. You want to try this? And so it's so much fun, you know, when they're really young, you know, five years old, we're going, hey, here's the conversation that we want to have is you are a child, adults are adults, and you honor adults. And so here's the competency we're teaching the boys this month. You look people in the eyes, you smile and you shake their hand, you speak as though you have something to say and you listen when you have nothing to say. And we're going, how do we train our boys um, to do this? We're going to do this as a tribe of dads, you know. And, and the moms partner with this as well. We know what the competencies are for that month and it's on our fridge. And so as a family, we're doing this together, really stewarding it together. Yeah. Or, hey, here's the goal for this month. We're going to develop some grit because we are sick of seeing a generation of snowflakes. Everybody is so soft and so weak. And we go, how do we raise men to be men again? Unapologetically, like, like strong, loving, Suck it up, gentle men. Yeah, and so <laughs> we're going we're gonna to develop grit. And so we're going to do some things. We're going to put you in some places of intentional failure this month. And we're going to get you to do some things and you're going to fail at it. And we're going to coach you through this, right? And so sometimes the stakes are like that. 
as they're getting a little older, the stakes have gotten higher, right? Once a month, we have this fire pit in our backyard and the boys are around the fire pit with their dads. And it's honestly one of my favorite moments of every month because we're just having conversation and it feels so natural. What the boys don't know is that me and the dads have been talking and praying and communicating about what we're talking about. But we sit down and we just have this conversation that feels like we just spontaneous, you know? And so we're with our, our 10-year-old group um, a couple of weeks ago, and we're having the co- conversation around porn. And every time I, I tell young dads, hey, tonight we've got the conversation about porn, they all go, tell me how that goes. I go, guys, it's awesome. It's so fun. It's so freeing. God shows up. He breaks chains. He sets things up. He's doing work in the marriages. He's doing things in the dads. He's doing things in the sons. And I go, like, man, wouldn't you have loved to have been a kid and with your parents to have some awkward conversations? But it's only awkward when you don't know how to deal with it and address it. And it's just amazing to have a community of people that you're running with. And so we go, how do you get away and get some vision? How do you set some goals? How do you build some guardrails? How do you put a group of people around you and around your kids to live this out. Last principle is finally you as a parent or a grandparent or a spiritual parent or whatever role you find yourself in. Number five, you embrace your role as the guide. You are the guide. You are the guide. You've been entrusted by God. Whether your kids recognize it or not, you've been entrusted by God to serve as a spiritual guide in the life of your kids. Um, Whether they recognize it or want it or see it. You know, one of my favorite passages of scripture is 1 Corinthians 4, verse 15, 16, and 17. Paul goes, you've had so many teachers. You've had 10,000 teachers. He goes, but you have not had many fathers. And he goes, but in the gospel, I've become your father in Jesus And he goes, and I want you to imitate my way of life that lines up with all of the things that I've taught. He goes, in other words, what you've seen in in my house confirms and affirms what I preach about in public, like the private gives authority to the public, right? And so um, you are the guide in that culture that Paul was speaking into, kind of the way that it worked is um, kids, you know, sort of between four and five years old up until they're about 11 or 12, they would be taught some of the basics of education, a lot of times by a tutor or a teacher. And then when they hit about 11 or 12, the, the, the girls would come under the apprenticeship of their moms. The dads would become, the sons would become apprentices under their fathers. And that was the place where all of the head knowledge became real because there was a place to work it out. And Paul goes, you've had lots and lots of people talk to you about the principles they've taught you, but you don't have anybody to guide you in the practicals. You don't have fathers. He goes, I've become your father. Or you don't have any mothers. You don't have people to show you how this works. And so Part of all of this is just you choosing to stand in agreement with what God has already said is true about you, that you are a spiritual father. You are a spiritual mother. And it's going to look different in every season. It's different for those of you who your kids are grown. It's different for those of you that are working with your grandkids. It's different for those of you that are doing this with your spiritual children or teenage children or little children. We could have a whole other session on the difference between leading with influence or authority. And both of those things matter, but that's not for here or for now. But for you to just embrace your role as a guide is really important. And to do this with humility and clarity and vision. I'll just give you a a couple, we'll give you a couple of quick things on this. 
when it comes to embracing your role as a guide. Number one is don't assume that your children know that you are supposed to serve as their spiritual guide. Don't assume. I think a lot of times we just assume that they know this. And, and so literally with our kids, we try to just consistently say, hey, in, in light of our discipling relationship, like, hey, what's happening right here is discipleship. You know, on Monday nights, we do this thing with our boys called TGIM. This was our way of rebranding the worst day of the week. You know, they hated Mondays. We, it's like, I think we come out of the womb and we all know Mondays suck. Like, we hate Mondays. <laughs> we don't want, you know, and so we're like, how do we rebrand Mondays? And so we're like, we're going to make them really fun. Thank goodness it's Monday. And Monday nights, we go eat really fun food. We do something awesome. And then it's the time where we're just pouring into our kids. We're just discipling them. Here's the thing that we're working on. Here's what we're going after. You're getting our first fruit, our best effort as we come in to the beginning of the week. But we're constantly having to tell them, hey, this isn't just family dinner. We are intentionally training you. So number one, as as you think about being their guide, don't assume it. Don't assume that they know that's what you're doing. You have to name it. Secondly, don't outsource it. Don't outsource it. Partner with everybody. But don't put the responsibility on anybody's shoulders other than you as a parent or a spiritual parent. You don't outsource this. This is yours to own. You know, man, I, I want to think about my kids' spiritual formation. I want to think about their life in God. I want to think about who they're becoming. And I'm, we're constantly cheating because we go, hey, we're not experts in everything. Who do we know that we need to bring in alongside of us as partners to help work this out in the life of our sons, but we are choosing to own it. We're not outsourcing it. So don't assume it, don't outsource it. And last but not least, don't shrink back from it. It's amazing, you know, to us that the role that shame and guilt and fear try to play in regards to the, our relationship with our boys. Like there's so many sins that we have in our life. I'm like, please don't ask me about that. Please don't ask me about that. Cause just, I'm scared I'll have to tell the truth, you know, or there's moments where we failed or we let them down. And so I feel this tendency to sort of shrink back a little. And I just want to encourage you, one of your greatest leverage points in your family is learning how to live with real honesty and humility and a spirit of repentance. And what we found is repentance is one of the most powerful, one of the most powerful tools. You know, there's a few months ago where I had lied. I had lied to somebody in our church and I was out at, I was out at. You are human. Okay, good. Yeah, okay. I, I was out at a meal with some of our boys and, and I, I run into this guy and he asked me a question and I didn't tell him the truth. And I didn't mean to do it. You know, sometimes you're just speaking before you. Th- so I was speaking and not thinking and I told him a lie. But then I realized, like right after I said it, I realized that it wasn't true, but I was embarrassed. I was embarrassed that I had lied. And so I just stuck with it. I'm like, you know, I just kept going and I like, so then I go and sit down with my boys and now I'm like, why did I do this? You know, and so I'm sitting there and one of my sons, who's just like really emotionally dialed in, he's like, dad, you okay? And I'm like, ah, oh, I just lied to that dude. And I didn't mean to. And they're like, well, what did he say when you apologized? And I'm like, I'm like oh, I'll tell, you you about, I'll tell you in about three minutes, you know, and then I walked over and I apologized. And honestly, it went kind of bad. It was super awkward. Like, and he's like, why'd you lie about that? And I'm like, I don't know. And it just went really weird. And so then I came back and I told the boys and I'm like, hey, sometimes you do the right thing after you've done the wrong thing and it still feels wrong. It just, it doesn't always work, you know, but repentance is a powerful thing. And I think the enemy is just so often going to try to say, 
hey, you've got to be perfect. No, you don't have to be perfect. You just have to be humble. You have to be repentant. You have to live it out. And so how do you function as a guide? You don't assume it. You don't outsource it. And you don't shrink back from it, even when you keep coming up against your failures as a parent. Yeah, I think something that you touched on, I love it. I know as a mom, like I remember when we first had our boys, I was like, mom, I was like, why does no one talk about the guilt and shame of parenting? She's like, because we're all ashamed. And I was like, oh, that makes a whole lot of sense. But you feel guilty for everything you're doing or everything you're not doing. You just kind of live in this tension. And so just in the name of Jesus, you got to brush that off and you've got to step into the God-given authority that you have as their parent. And even across genders, it's like, we have three boys, but I still have a spiritual authority and a spiritual obligation to raise these boys. I'm raising tough and tender men. That's our goal, right? And so what this looks like practically in our home is I'm gonna teach them. I'm gonna teach them hospitality. When we host people in our house, when we have house church in our home, hey guys, what do we do? We meet people at the door. You're gonna greet them at the door and say, hey, how are you doing? You're gonna shake their hand, look them in the eye. Hey, can I get you a drink of water? And then in conversation on our table, you're not just gonna talk about yourself. You know, kids can tend to come back to the egocentric me. Ask them good questions. How was your day? How are you doing? What was hard about that? Become question askers so you can get to know someone's heart. And sometimes this is really uncomfortable. Like I just, you know, Sydney's so good at this. She brings the boys into these environments and she's constantly trying to coach them. And I could give you, we've got like five minutes left, so. I'm not going to take all of our time here, but sometimes this goes really poorly and it's a great opportunity. I didn't know you were uh, going to tell this. I'm sweating. Uh, I don't think I'm telling the story. Okay. Anything. We have so many moments. Okay. Sydney has so many moments of failing our children. I could tell you for days. Now, you know, just a few weeks ago, we have somebody over that we've been discipling who's been going through a really hard time and we've just been trying to challenge our boys like, hey, ask good questions, be a listener, like what's going on? And so we're sitting around the table and one of our sons just goes, Hey, how are you feeling? I know the the divorce has been really hard. Are you okay? And I'm just like, why is that the question? (laughs) And, and, and the truth was, it was amazing. You know, God opened up this really great conversation. We try to invite them into that moment. There's other times where they'll ask a question or they'll bring something up. And it is like, so like, oh, I can't believe you went there. But if they can't learn in our home, where do you learn? Where do you learn? Where, where, where do you kind of work these things out? And this is one of the responsibilities that we have as parents. We bring them along on as much as we can. We believe on being a family on mission. And so that even looks like service for us. You know, we're going to bring them along once a month. The boys and I serve. We get there early at church. And we help set up the kids' space. When we take food, you know, teach them as you walk along, as you go on your way. When we take food to other families, we have the conversation on the way. Why are we taking food to this family? It's like, oh, that's what Jesus would do. He fed the hungry, right? He met their needs where they were at, loved them where they were at. And so we invite our kids all the way in and it gets messy and it's awkward at times, but just trusting that love covers a multitude of sin, right? That will personal forgive you for the awkwardness. But we really just see this as a mission of our whole family but us guiding them and teaching them because we're trying to raise fathers who father others. Yeah, so kind of big framework for you. Get a way to catch a vision. Set some goals towards that vision. Create some guardrails to, he- to keep you moving in that direction. Establish a group or a community around you and your kids and then own your role as the guide in their life or as one of the key guides in their life. And so lots of ways that we go with this as we land the plane. 
what are some next steps? And we'll just do this very quickly. If you don't know where to get started, I would just encourage you make a habit of getting away to hear from the Lord on this. If you only do one thing from this conversation, put it on your calendar, go home and say, hey, when are we going to get away and to catch a vision for our family? I don't care if you're 84 years old and you're going, hey, God, what's the vision for how we run in this season with our adult children and grandchildren? Or if you're a single and you just have spiritual children or you have young children, like if you only did one thing, get away to catch a vision with the Lord. And then start small and stick with it. You know, it's a whole lot easier to start with small building blocks and start with one thing and stick with that one thing until it just becomes automatic. It's your habit. And then introduce another thing, but start small and just stick with it. Yeah, and then last but not least, understand the relationship between consistency and intensity. Consistency and intensity. There's power and there's beauty in both of these things. I think a lot of times as leaders, we tend to think first through through the lens of intensity. And especially if you have any shame or guilt operating in your life, you'll be prone to move towards intensity. So you'll think, oh no, my kids are 14 and we haven't been reading the Bible together. And I got fired up at this conference because of what Dave and Sydney said. And so you go home and you're like, hey, we're going to memorize the Torah this summer. And your kids are like, what are you doing to me? And I don't know if you've ever seen this, just the pendulum swings. We're doing nothing. We're doing everything. We're doing nothing. They're doing everything. And you give your kids spiritual whiplash and they rebel against your authority when you do that. A lot of times we don't understand the relationship. Consistency is really important. The daily stuff, the daily time in the word, the daily prayer, the daily conversation, it's really important. But you also need seasons of intensity where you go, you know, every February we fast for 30 days, you know, the end of January to the end of February as a church and as a city. And we invite our boys into that. It's a season of intensity for us. We don't fast 365 days a year. <laughs> We'd be dead. Because we're not Shinake. Oh, yeah, 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 we're not Shinake. <laughs> but it's a season of intensity. And then we come out of that and there's consistency where the first Wednesday of every month we fast. You know, it's a place of consistency. You need both of those things working together. We need weekly date nights and we need yearly anniversary trips. Like you need both. You need consistency and intensity in, in the life of your children. So make some space to get away. Start small and stick with it understand consistency and intensity, and then beg the Holy Spirit to help you in all of it. What a gift it's been. Sid, would you pray over these folks as we wrap up? Lord, we just thank you for this time. We know time is precious. And so we just thank you for letting us be here. Father, would just one thing just fall on these people's Mm -hmm. hearts, a way that they can step into greater intimacy with you as a family, whether it's the spiritual family that they have, whether it's grandchildren, whether it's their immediate home, whether it's grown children, Father, you know where they're at, you know what their hearts need, and you are inviting them into more. And so, Lord, we pray against the schemes of the devil that you try to steal, kill, and destroy. And so we pray against that, that these families could go back in and just really go after it. Just one step, one next piece, just grow in intimacy with you, Lord. And so we just pray a blessing in the name of Jesus, in the name of the Holy Spirit, that these families would just flourish underneath your wing. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Man, that was some fantastic stuff from Dave and Sydney. I hope that you enjoyed that episode, and I hope that it encouraged you as parents out there, and also those of you that don't have biological children. I hope that you got encouraged to pour into somebody that is younger than you, that might be 
not quite as far along in the faith as you are. Hopefully this episode motivated you towards that. Up next, we've got another track session from Aaron Brockett and Bart Shaw. So make sure to hit the subscribe button if you haven't already so you know when I release that. And hey, it is two more days after this podcast comes out that we are hosting the City Tour in Nashville. If you live in the Nashville area, come on out to Harpeth Christian Church, October 27th and 28th, and hang out with us for the Discipleship.org City Tour. I get the privilege of leading worship, and you're going to be hearing from various speakers within the Discipleship.org network, and it's just going to be a great time. Go to Discipleship.org and buy your tickets and come on out and hang out with us. All right, y'all. Thanks so much for being a listener of this podcast and hope that you enjoy the rest of your day. We'll see you.